Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So seriously, um, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16 because before we get to the book of Philippians, it's always important to find out how these churches started that Paul planted. And some of the books in the Bible, we don't know exactly how those churches were planted, but the Philippians church, we do know how it was planted. And so you go back to the book of Acts and you find out how that church was started. And so before we study Philippians, the the letter that Paul writes back to the church he started, Paul's in prison in Rome, he's writing back, I want you to find out how the church was planted, who is this church made up of, and the question we're going to ask tonight is, how does God plant a new church? Okay, so... Let's pick up in verse um, 6. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Paul and Silas and Timothy are on this missionary journey. This is after Paul and Barnabas have already separated. And so they're going, it's a different ministry track. So let's pick up in verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I don't know if you have a map. I should have brought a map tonight. Do you guys have maps in the back of your Bibles? Um, if not, look at, do you, do you have a map in the back of your Bibles of the missionary journeys of Paul? Hopefully, if you don't, you have an electronic bible i'm sorry but if you have a real bible um if not look at the person like look at the back of your bible or look by somebody i, I want to show you just kind of the situation here because you can see a good map what's happening here is that paul wanted to go to asia now when we think of asia don't think of china really back in that day it, it was turkey paul wanted to really go to asia with the major area being ephesus in the seven churches in that area. But what does the book of Acts tell us? It says the Holy Spirit forbid him from going. God, the Holy Spirit said, Paul, you're not, your time is not right to go to Ephesus. I know you want to go over there. I know you want to go to Asia. I know you want to preach the gospel, but we're not letting you. So Paul has a vision of this man from Macedonia. Now, if you look on your map, where's Macedonia? Macedonia is really modern-day Greece, the area where Greece is. So in Macedonia, you, all, you have Thessalonica, you have Philippi, you have more of the, the Greek churches as opposed to the Asian churches. And so Paul has this vision of this Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia. That's where God says you're supposed to go now, Paul. So in Macedonia is where you have Philippi, 
you have Thessalonica, and you have some other major cities. And then later on, Paul's going to end up getting to go back to Ephesus where he wanted to go first. But Philippi is a key Roman city in the area of Macedonia. And so Paul says, okay, God's made it very clear. He's given us a vision. We need to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel there. And the first town they get to is Philippi, thus the church in Philippians. So there's not a church in Philippi yet. There's no church there yet. Now, can you even conceive of a place where there's not even a church yet? We do mission trips to unreached people groups where we've gone in places where they don't have a church. So Paul's going into a place where there's no Christian church. But in Philippi, as we'll see, there is a Jewish presence. So the, the Old Testament, the Jewish religion is there, but not the Christian, not the gospel. So let's keep reading and find out what happens. So verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now, we don't know how long he stayed there, but some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, let me just give you a little background because many years ago we did go through the book of Acts, but I don't expect you to remember that. But Paul had a missionary method when he'd go to a town. What was Paul's missionary method when he would go to a new city? Where would he go? If you trace the book of Acts, he would go first to see if there were Jews gathering at a synagogue. Now, why do you think Paul would first go to a Jewish synagogue when he went to a new city? Why do you think he'd go there first? It's a little bit easier, sort of, because it's closer to being... What do they have a knowledge of? They have a knowledge of God. They have a knowledge of the Old Testament. They have the history of Abraham, Isaac. And so he could, he could start with... Because what did Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God of salvation, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. So Paul would go to the Jews first to see if he could get a hearing. But what the issue was is that he usually went to the synagogue. Do you see anywhere in this passage of Scripture where he goes to the synagogue? Where does he go? To a river. Okay? There's no synagogue in Philippi. Which means that in order to have a synagogue, you needed at least 10 Jewish males in the city. So there's no male Jews. That's why there's a bunch of women 
who were, when it says Lydia was a worshiper of God, it doesn't mean she was a Christian yet. It just meant that there was a handful of women who were attracted to the Jewish religion and they knew from the Old Testament they're supposed to worship on the Sabbath day. There's no synagogue for them to go to because there's not 10 men to have a synagogue. So where are they going to meet in a, in, a, in a Gentile city that doesn't have a synagogue? Well, let's go down the river. That's where they go. And so what does Paul do? Paul goes, finds out where they're at and, and how Paul found this out. We don't know, but I'm, I'm sure people said, he probably went in and said, is there any Jewish people here? Oh, yeah, we know that group of women. Those weird women are down there by the river. They're praying. They're having some type of worship service. Paul goes down there. And what does he do? He goes down and he finds these women. And there's one woman in particular, verse 14. One of the ladies who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Now, why does Paul, or why does Luke in the book of Acts focus on the fact that she was a seller of purple goods? Yes, exactly. Lydia is probably a very, is very wealthy as purple dye reflected royalty and wealth. She is probably a prominent businesswoman in Philippi. A fashionista if you want to say that. She is probably wealthy. She has influence. We notice that she has a house large enough for Paul and his traveling companions to stay. And so she's a prominent woman. But notice what verse 14 says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to respond to Paul's messages. So here's the question we're asking. How does God plan a church? He begins by saving sinners. Can't have a church until you have Christians. So what does God do to Lydia? Who opens whose heart? Does Lydia open her heart? God opens her heart. Yes, Marie. Yes. And so here's what happens. This is how churches are planted. And more importantly, this is how you and I were saved. God came down in His sovereign grace and opened our hearts to the truths of the gospel. Okay, so we don't have the words regeneration, new birth, but that's exactly what's going on here. What do we call when God opens the heart of a sinner? You can call it regeneration. You can call it being born again. You can call it the new birth. You can call it being made alive. All these different words are, are used in the Bible to talk about the same experience that God comes and takes your heart and opens it. Now, we see this prophesied in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27, this is God speaking, okay? This is God saying what He's going to do in a future day under the new covenant when Christ comes, and in John 3, this becomes a reality when Jesus meets with Nicodemus. But God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you what? A new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who's the one doing all of the work there? God. And what's the picture? 
you got a dead, stony, black heart because of sin that needs to be removed. And God does that. God takes out the heart of stone and puts a heart of flesh. And let me just ask you a question. Can you take out your own heart? If it's dead and stony, put a new one in there. God has to do that. And that's what he did to Lydia. God opened her heart. What did Jesus say about our hearts? Why are our hearts stony? Why are our hearts dead? What did Jesus say about our hearts? In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So where does the evil come from? As sinners who have not been saved, the Bible, Jesus says, it comes from your heart. All, why do you sin? Because your heart leads you to sin. Why do you commit sinful actions? Because your heart leads you to do that. Your heart is sinful. So, what does Paul say about the condition of our hearts without Christ? Paul says in Romans chapter 3, Verses 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. That includes everybody. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's a pretty graphic depiction of the human. We're, we're, we're dead. We follow Satan. We follow the flesh. We follow the world. We're children of wrath. Paul says that's what you were. That's what you used to be. So left to yourself as one who's spiritually dead, who has a heart of stone, who is hostile to God, who has sin coming from your heart, left to yourselves, can you do anything to change your heart? Could Lydia down there at the, at the river just you know, wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'm going to change my, my wicked heart. I've got the will and the power and the, I can do this. What had to happen? Paul had to pre. Go, go ahead, Marie. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what God had to do. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit, God had to open her heart. And how did it come? Look, look back at the Acts passage. Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to what? Pay attention to what was said by Paul after, and after she was baptized. So what's going on here? God is opening her heart to begin to understand the gospel, and we assume she got saved because it says she was baptized. Now, Paul, you know, it doesn't in the passage there say, and she was saved, but do we know the Bible of baptizing anybody that's not saved? It's an implication there that because her heart was open, she got saved. Now, what does Jesus say about the new birth? Remember what Ezekiel passage? I will put, I will sprinkle you with clean water, I'll put my spirit in you. What does Jesus say when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8? 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So Jesus says... We need to be born again. So think of all these different words we've seen. You've got to have, you've got to be born again. You've got to have a new heart. You've got to have your heart opened. What else does Jesus say about the new birth? Actually, John. In John 1, 12-13. But, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this talks about being born, not necessarily again, but born of God. That does not look like a letter. Born of God. Okay. So, If you have a dead, stony, unresponsive, (coughs) sinful heart, God has to make you alive. Look at Ephesians, what it says there. Ephesians, what does Paul say about the new birth? Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Who made who alive? Did you make yourself alive? No, God made you alive. Why could you not make yourself alive? Because you were dead. (laughs) Yeah, you were dead. Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you've actually got the word there in Titus, regeneration, renewal, Holy Spirit, born again, new birth, made alive, new heart, born of God, opened your heart. What happened to Lydia is all that. The Bible just gives different words to describe the same experience. And then let's just talk about what Peter says about the new birth in... um, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to what? Be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, how does God plant a church? How does God save sinners? He takes someone who's dead, who's lost, whose heart is stony, and He causes that person to become alive through the preaching of the gospel, when the Holy Spirit comes and opens the heart. And that's what happens to Lydia. Yes? And then um, they produce spores, and then that goes and uh, fertilizes the ground and produces um, more fertilizer. What? Now say that again? Okay, so what I'm saying is, and then they produce the spores, like those little seeds of the dandelions or lettuce or whatever. And so then they, being born again, they have other little seeds inside of them that they go and... Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. You're, you're like metaphorically, when, yeah, when you get yeah. saved, you've received the Holy Spirit, and yeah, you yeah. can go sh- you go sk- spread, spread yeah, the yeah. seed of the gospel. And, yeah, okay, I understand. I just, the spores was kind of giving me, got me a little confused there. But I understand what you're saying. Yes, 
Now, think about this. Paul does one other description of how this happens. I'm giving you all the like New Testament verses on regeneration, on, on the new birth. All these different languages. Regeneration, renewal, born again, new birth, made alive, open to heart, born of God. Paul uses creation terminology in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, he says, and it's talking about unbelievers here. In their case, the God of this world, that's talking about Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So what's the problem? Non-believers are blinded to the glory of Christ. They're blinded. They can't see because they've been spiritually blinded. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. So when sinners are blinded and they can't see because Satan has blinded them, we preach Christ, we proclaim Christ, we share the gospel. And what does God do when we share the gospel? Verse 6 tells us. Yeah, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What does that sound like? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God said, let there be, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But later on, he says, let there be. So just like in creation, when God created out of nothing and made something, what's he doing here? He's not creating out of nothing and making something. He's taking something that's dead. And he's making it alive, your heart. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how is the church in Philippi planted? One woman, a prominent businesswoman, hears the gospel preached, and we don't have Paul's message, but we assume that he preached the gospel. The Lord opened her heart to receive that message. And then what happens next? Verse 15, she was what? Immediately she was baptized. Is she in her whole household? And so almost every time in the book of Acts somebody gets saved, they immediately get baptized. And so that's how the church starts in Philippi. And where does it probably start? Probably in her home. Because what does it say? If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul... And Silas, they go to Lydia's house, stay with her and her household, all that were there. And I'm assuming that's where the church was birthed. So what does Paul have to start doing? He's got a family that are believers. What's he got to start doing in this house? He's got to start discipling them. He's got to start teaching them. He's got to start building up the church. Okay, so at this point, it's just Lydia's household in Philippi. That's how the church is planted people banging on the walls. The, the ch- okay, now, just when you thought things were going well, okay, the church is planted, awesome. We've got this wonderful, prominent businesswoman in Philippi. I'm sure she's got a great reputation in the community. A lot of people probably go do business with her. It's, the, the church is planted. But let's keep reading and see what happens. How does God plant a church? When God plants a church, Satan doesn't like it. So let's see what Satan tries to do to thwart God's purposes. He can't, but let's see what he tries to do. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. 
She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay. We see the next person that God saves and uses to plant the church in Philippi. And she's the polar opposite of Lydia. If Lydia was a successful businesswoman who had everything, this young slave girl had nothing. How does she make money? Trick question. Does she get to make money? She makes money for her slave owners. So literally, she's probably... It's almost like human trafficking if you think about it. She's being used and abused by her owners because she's a spirit medium, okay? So she's demonically possessed by a demon, and it's lucrative business because she's able to tell people's fortunes. And so her owners are parading her around Philippi, uh, getting people to pay money. And it says she has a spirit of divination. I don't know what other translations say there um, in verse 16. Literally in the Greek text, it says she has a python spirit. I don't know if the King James calls it a python spirit, I think. Does anybody have a King James or a pythonic spirit? Python, in Greek mythology, python was the name of the snake that lived in the oracle of Delphi and killed Apollo. So the python in Greek mythology was a symbol of the underworld. So if we have a wealthy fashionista, we can call her snake girl. Okay, she's a snake, she's got a snake demon, whatever that was. A python spirit. I mean it's demonic. She's possessed by a demon. And what's she doing? She's telling people's fortunes. She's got a spirit of divination. What does the Bible say about divination and sorcery and fortune telling? In Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughters as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So not only is she a, probably a Gentile slave girl, but she, in being abused by her owners, but she's got a, a demonic spirit in her. So I want you to think about just how helpless this girl is. Okay? And what's she doing? She's going around and following Paul. What's Paul doing? Paul's out there preaching the gospel. And what's she doing as she's following around Paul? 
It says right there, verse 17, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, does that sound bad at first? Okay. Let me give you some Greek mythology here. When she says the Most High God, she's not Jewish. She's not referring to the God of Israel. This is Philippi, not Jerusalem. This is not a city that has an understanding of the Old Testament. These are pagans steeped in Greek mythology. She may have heard Paul saying, Most High God. And so she's kind of mimicking, this demon is mimicking what Paul's teaching. But do you have any mention of salvation in Jesus here? She's trying to confuse people. What she's probably doing is saying, listen to these guys, they're one of many ways of salvation. They believe in the Most High God. We believe in Apollo. We believe in Zeus. They believe in the Most High God. It's all one hodgepodge of reality. Now, if it's a demonic spirit, is she going to be telling the truth? Is she going to try to come alongside Paul and verify for the gospel? Okay, so whatever she was doing was annoying Paul because she was coming behind. So it would be like this, okay? Think about this, okay? How frustrating this would be. Okay, every Sunday I'm preaching a sermon. And as I'm preaching the sermon, there's somebody out in the audience that says something, sort of what I'm saying, but kind of confusing. And everybody turns and looks. Then I keep preaching. And then this person says something weird and everybody turns and looks. And this goes on week after week. And eventually, like, you're not going to come anymore. Or you're going to be like, I'm not coming until you do something with that crazy person. Now, Paul had a lot of patience. We don't know how long this girl was following him around. But Paul had had enough. And so he turns to her and addresses it. But she has a seductive strategy. Um, she doesn't, it should be she, doesn't outright oppose the message of the gospel, but throws confusion into the mix and tries to make Christianity look like other belief systems. Actually, I'm talking about Satan there. Yeah, it is he, not she. How seductive his strategy is. Yeah, Satan's strategy. He doesn't outright oppose the message of the gospel, but throws confusion into the mix and tries to make Christianity look like any other belief system. Isn't that kind of what's going on today with false teachers? Like you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon and they'll use God and Jesus and salvation and faith and grace, but do they mean the same things? Most people are swayed into a cult or another world religion not because that person comes out and like lays out what they believe out front. They usually try to be seductive and, and use the same terminology, but with different definitions. And what does the Bible say about Satan? What is he good at? 2 Corinthians 11, 13-14, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now I want you to think about this poor girl for a moment. She's, number one, possessed by a demon. She's being abused and exploited by her owners. And she's throwing people into confusion. And if you're Paul, you're probably conflicted because you're thinking, I want to give this girl some... I can't, I'm reading into Paul here. I'm, okay, so this is not from the Scriptures. This is kind of my thought process. This is more my opinion. 
I want to cut this girl some slack because she's a slave girl. She's exploited. She's abused. But enough's enough. We've got to deal with this demon. And so Paul is greatly annoyed. <laughs> the word there means he's grieved and deeply disturbed. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly why he's annoyed. It could be. I think he's grieved over the helpless estate of this demon-possessed girl. I think he's disturbed over how she's being treated. I think he's disturbed over the fact that she's demon-possessed, but I think he's also disturbed that she's being used by Satan to confuse the gospel. So there's a lot of levels of, of annoyance there. Okay? Now, there's no elaborate exorcism going on. What does Paul just do? He turns to her and says, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out. The demon came out. Okay. What's happening now? What's the problem now? No demon, no more ability to tell fortunes. She's no longer of use to her owners. You were good, little girl, when you made us money. You were good, little girl, when you followed people around and told people's fortunes. But now that you're, that demon's out of you, you are no good to us. And notice what it says there in verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, what did they do? They took it out on Paul and Silas. They dragged them before the marketplace. Okay? Now, in verses 18 and 19, it says... Okay, where am I here? Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. The text doesn't say she was saved, only that she was exercised of a demon. So we're left to guess. But many scholars believe that since this story comes between Lydia and the jailer that we're going to see in a moment, she was indeed saved and welcomed into the church. I agree with that statement even though it doesn't explicitly say she was saved or she was welcome in the church why would the story be told of the demon coming out of her and so i think it's a powerful verse that gives hope to women and young girls who are being abused or exploited or brutalized by corrupt men the power of the gospel can liberate you out of situations like it did with this young girl and so she's useless you're not performing anymore we're going to throw you out. So this is a conjecture, but probably this new church in Philippi meeting in Lydia's house took this young girl in and helped her out. So think about the irony here. She's a slave girl that's being abused and used and demon-possessed. And now she's saved and she's cleansed, and she's forgiven, and she's precious, and she's adopted into God's family, and she's taken into a church family that supports her. That's what the gospel does. You've got this rich fashionista contrasted with this little slave girl with the python spirit. These are the two first people that Paul encounters in the church in Philippi. Now, in verses in 18 and 19, you have a play on words. When the demon came out of her, the hope of her slave owners for making money had gone out of them. It's kind of a play on words. When the demon left, their hope left. When the demon was gone, their hope was gone. We, we're sunk now. We can't make money because she's no longer producing our hopes of having money. And so... These 
happy, these guys are happy to blame all of this on Paul and Silas. So what do they do? We don't know what they do with the girl, but they take it out on Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. And what do they say? When they had brought them to the magistrate, what are the first words out of their mouth? These men are Jews. So not only were they corrupt slave owners exploiting a helpless young girl, they're also anti-Semitic. They didn't like Jews. Now, one thing about Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were very proud of their Roman citizenship. They did not like outsiders coming in and messing things up, especially Jews. Notice what they say there. They're disturbing our city. Verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. We don't like these Jews coming in and doing things to upset our city. So, what do they do to Paul and Silas? They strip them. They're beaten with rods. They're inflicted with many blows publicly and they're thrown into prison and fastened in the inner prison with their feet in stocks. They're left almost for dead in prison. So think about it this way. What would happen in Las Vegas if all the prostitutes and bar owners got saved and repented and left their professions? There truly was a transformation in Las Vegas. You think the town would be in an uproar? then the entire fabric of Las Vegas would be affected. And so in beating and imprisoning Paul and Silas, they really had no idea what they're doing. Because what did they say? These guys are Jews. What they did not know, which is very important in Philippi, Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens. So they're actually being imprisoned against the law. But they don't care about that. So let's just ask the question, up to this point, how does God plant a church? He opens the heart of a wealthy professional woman in the fashion industry. A fashionista gets saved. He liberates the shackles of a poor demon-possessed slave girl and grants her freedom in Christ. The snake girl gets saved. And then Paul gets thrown in jail. Is this how you would plan for a church to be planted. Yes, Marie. Uh, he breaks up the ground to make the soil good. Yeah, he does. And so think about it this way. What if, what if we were planning a church and God came to us and said, okay, here's how it's going to go down. You're going to go into a town and this fashionista lady's going to get saved you, know, you wouldn't expect her to get saved, but God's going to open her heart. You're going to start meeting in her house. And then this demon girl is going to start causing problems with this python spirit. And she's going to be following you around and annoying things. And you're going to cast out a demon. And the next thing you know, you're going to get put in jail. That's how we're going to start a church. Who would want to sign up for that? But doesn't that show you that God has a great sense of humor? It's amazing what God can do through the power of the gospel. Who would have thought the first two members of the Philippian church would be a wealthy fashionista and a demon-possessed slave girl? God does have a sense of humor, doesn't he? But it's the power 
of the gospel. So who, so who do we have in our church? Who's the nucleus of our church? Lydia's family and a slave girl that just came out of being demon-possessed. That's the nucleus. And where's your pastor? He's in jail. Okay, so what's going to happen now? We get the third group of people that are going to be the nucleus of this new church. So let's keep reading. We turn to the third person that Paul encounters in the Philippian church in God's plan, and we see diversity at its fullest. It's not a wealthy businesswoman or a demon-possessed slave girl. It's a middle-class prison worker, like maybe some in this room. So let's keep reading. So they're in jail. They're in the inner jail. Their feet are in stocks. Let's pick up in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs... What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, this is, gets really amazing here. If you, if you thought the pesky little python slave girl was an interesting story, okay, you've been beaten. Okay, think about Paul's day. How was your day, Paul? Well, I cast out a demon of this python slave girl, and then they threw me into a mob riot, and I got beaten to a pulp, and then they put me into the prison, and I'm shackled next to my friend Silas, and it becomes midnight, and we begin singing praise songs. God is so awesome. Now, what would you do if, you, if all that happened to you? What would be your first response? God, you're crazy. Why are you making me go through this? God, why did you bring me to Philippi? Why did I have to listen to that Macedonian call? Why, 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 is this hap- why am I in prison? What's going on? But not these guys. About midnight, verse 25, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And I like that the prisoners were listening to them. They express joy. They could have just been like privately having a conversation. Hey, Silas, are you doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Hey, you know what? Let's, 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 hey, let's remind each other of some Bible verses. What are they doing? They're praying out loud. Father, they're probably, I mean, they're probably, Paul's strategic. Paul's not going to waste an opportunity. He's going to be praying out loud and they're singing. Why are they doing this? Well, they're worshiping God, but they're also being a witness. And they're expressing joy. Now, what does the Bible say? What does Paul say about joy? Romans 5, 3 through 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love 
has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What does Paul say there? We rejoice in our suffering. I'm going to take this opportunity to be in chains and rejoice to my God. Because I know that this is going to produce character and it's going to produce hope. And even if I don't get out of this prison, what's the one thing I can count on? God's poured His love into my heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. I've got salvation. So if I die here, I get to go see Jesus. And you're going to hear echoes of that in Philippians. Because where is Paul when he's writing Philippians? This is a different jail. This is the Philippian jail. Paul's in jail a lot. When he writes the, the letter to the Philippians, he's in the Roman jail. He's in Rome in a different jail. Okay, what does James say about suffering? Trials. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul says rejoice in your sufferings. James says count it all joy when you meet trials. Rejoice in sufferings, count on all joy when you face trials. And what's the outcome of both? It's going to bring steadfastness. It's going to build your character. It's going to, it's going to build your faith. Peter gives an interesting analogy here of like dross coming to the surface when you, when you smelt down gold. First Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Bible teaches us to rejoice in suffering. And that's what Paul and Silas are doing. I don't think I would do that. To be honest with you, if I was a pastor that had been, just been beaten up and thrown in jail, probably the last thing I would be doing, and I'm just being honest here, would be sitting there singing praise songs to God. I'd be thinking, God, get me out of this. God, I hate this. Um, all the thoughts that go through your mind. But notice what God does. What happens? Verse 26, Suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. Okay, so like this is a miracle upon miracles. Okay, so earthquake, all the prison doors are open, and not just that, all the, everyone's bonds were unfastened. Okay, so think about the miracle. I don't know how many prisoners were in there, but it's like, okay, God makes an earthquake. God opens the prisoner's doors. God takes the shackles off of them. Okay? And the prison guard is thinking, I'm going to lose my job because all of my prisoners are escaping. So what's he going to do? It would be easier for me just to kill myself right now because back during that time, I mean, it wasn't like you'd get a slap on the wrist or you get like a fine or whatever. It's like, no, you probably get the death penalty. So let's just, let me get out of my misery now. But here's the amazing thing about this prison escape. Did you, did you catch the prison escape? This is, a, this is a greater miracle. Here's the amazing thing about this prison escape. Nobody escapes. All the prisoners stayed there. Notice what it says. Verse 27 When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. Now, why did they stay? Now, think about prisoners for a moment. What's your first reaction? Hey, man, those doors are open. I'm out of here. But what have they just experienced? 
Paul and Silas singing, praising, worshiping. The only answer I've got was they were probably so affected by the worship of Paul and Silas. The text doesn't tell us, but we do find out what God does next in planting this church in Philippi. We don't know why all of them stayed, but they did. But the focus is not on all the prisoners that stayed. It's on the the jailer. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, here's here's the most important thing. Verse 30 is the most powerful question that anybody can ask. What must I do to be saved? What a setup. Greatest evangelistic moment there. I mean, it's like the softball's coming right to Paul. What must I do to be saved? And what's the answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now let's just talk about this simple statement that's very, very important. Let's just break down what Paul tells the guy. What must so here what's the question? What must I do to be saved? Okay, let's just before this is not on your sheet, but let's just let's just ask a question. What does it mean when you when somebody asks you, are you saved? What must I do to be saved? Paul tells you how to be saved, but let's back up an issue. Why do we need to be saved? Saved from what? Okay, amen. We are saved from hell, from sin, from justice. And so, obviously, let me just ask you a question. Did God open Lydia's heart? Did God liberate a slave girl? Now, the text doesn't tell us here what's going on in the heart of the jailer, but something must be going on there because why would he ask that question if God wasn't working on his heart? Yeah, none of the prisoners left, and it was yeah, none of the prisoners left. So, so, so through the powerful testimony of Paul and Silas singing, praising God, the the earthquake, the prisoners had an opportunity to leave. They don't. The jailer's like, "There's something supernatural. There's something different about this." Why would he ask that question, unless he was under some type of conviction? Would you, if you were a jailer, would that be the first question you'd ask Paul? Maybe the question would be, "How come nobody left? Who are you guys?" What's what's his question? What must I do to be saved? Which tells me, what were Paul and Silas probably singing about? Salvation. I bet you, Paul, this is just a bet. I could just picture Paul in the prison saying, Dear Lord, please save all the people here. And just like praying the gospel out loud. So they can hear it. Now, the text doesn't tell us that. That's just a guess. But you know Paul's modus operandi. He's never going to lose an opportunity. Yes? Oh, I just wanted to mention that it seems like the, great, the jailer's mindset had already shifted from the natural and the temporal to the eternal because he's saying, like, what should I do to be saved? Not like, what should I do to save my life or yeah. the judgment or my boss or whatever, yeah. but for the eternal. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, he's not thinking about, like, how am I going to save my job? You know, yeah, he's not thinking about himself as far as comfort or physical. He's thinking about his eternal soul. So let's, let's just ask the questions here, answer the questions. 
The answer, Paul says, is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So what's the first thing? We must believe. Now this is more than just a mental assent to the facts. A lot of people believe Jesus. They believe he was a good teacher. They may even believe he died on the cross. They may even believe that he rose again. Now, I've given this illustration a lot, but I'm going to give it again. So if you've heard this before, just tune me out. But if you never heard it, listen, okay? That's always a good thing to do to your audience. It means everybody's going to tune me out. No, okay, so bungee jumping. How many of you have ever been bungee jumping? I know your brother has, my, my, my brother-in-law. So, okay, bungee jumping is the most idiotic thing that you can ever do, okay? So you are on the edge of a cliff, you're on the edge of a bridge, and you've got this little tiny rubber band around you. And you're supposed to harness this rubber band on you. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to jump. Okay. So there's two ways you can, you can view faith. Okay. First type of faith, you can say, you know what? I like that bungee cord. It looks really good. It looks like it's going to hold me up. As a matter of fact, let me try on the bungee cord. Hey, you know what? This bungee cord kind of fits me pretty good. I like, I, I like this bungee cord. I, I, I believe this bungee cord can hold me up. This is a cool bungee cord. Now, that's sort of faith, right? There's a second type of faith. I'm going to put the bungee cord off. I'm going to hold my breath, and I'm going to jump. And what am I going to do? I'm going to trust that the bungee cord's going to not snap, not break. I'm not going to have a devastating date with gravity. It's going to be an exhilarating rush. I'm putting all of my trust in the bungee cord. Now, which kind of faith is biblical Christian faith, the first or the second? The second, because the first one says, I like Jesus. I can try Jesus on. I believe the facts about Jesus. He's a good guy, but I'm not really trusting him for much. The second type of faith says, I'm going to place my entire life into Jesus. I'm going to trust him with everything. I'm going to jump out into the unknown and I'm going to place my entire life in him and I'm going to believe in him and I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to give my life to him. That's the type of faith that Paul is talking about here. It's not just, hey, I believe Jesus exists. It's you must believe into Jesus. Put your entire faith into Him. And by the way, Jesus is more glorious than a bunch of cords. So I'm not just making it, you know, I'm not just saying that's an analogy. All right, second thing, what does it say? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Notice what Paul says. It's confessing and acknowledging Him as the Lord. Lord Jesus. It's crucial. Many people like the idea of Jesus being their Savior because they can have their sins forgiven and not have to go to hell. That's awesome. That's that's wonderful. But we must also believe in Jesus as Lord in the sense that He has the absolute right to be sovereign over our lives. So it says... Lord Jesus. It's very crucial that we confess Jesus as Lord. And what does Paul say in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So, trick question. Do you make Jesus the Lord of your life? Answer, no. <gasps> You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. Why? 
He already is Lord. You don't make Him Lord of your life. He already is Lord, whether you do anything with Him or not. The question becomes, do you acknowledge Him as Lord? Do you submit to Him who He already is? Do you surrender your life to Him as Lord? Jesus is Lord whether you trust in Him or not. Because what does the Bible say? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so taking Jesus as Lord is more than just, hey, I'm punching my ticket to get my free ticket to heaven. I want my get out of hell free card. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I want to have Jesus forgive my sins. You have to confess Him as your Lord, which means that you have to submit to Him to, to, to be the one who's the king of your life that, that gives you that tells you how to live and what to believe, and you submit to Him as your Lord. Okay, third. Believe, okay, that's number one, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So implied in the believing in the Lord Jesus is, thirdly, there's nothing you can do to save yourself except by grace alone. Paul does not say, believe and say five Hail Marys and go to church 500 times and then you can be saved. He doesn't say, do this ritual and try as hard as you can and then you'll be saved. What's, all he's, what's the only thing he says? Believe in the Lord Jesus. So, all you can do is believe. And that faith that you have to believe is not even from yourselves. It's, it's a gift of God. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, there's a lot of debate over this passage of Scripture. You've got the word grace, you've got the word saved, and you've got the word faith, and then you've got this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Well, what's the, what's the gift of God? What's the it referring back to? Here's where it's hard in the Greek language. Grace, faith, and salvation are all in masculine. It is a neuter. Now that may not mean anything to you. We, we really don't know exactly what it goes back to. Some people argue, like the early church fathers argued, it goes back to the faith. The faith is the gift. Others say, no, it's the grace is a gift. Most modern scholars would say, it's the entire package. It's the grace, it's the faith, it's the salvation. Everything about it is a gift from God so that no one may boast. No matter how you take it, what's the point? You can't save yourself. It's a gift of God. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what God did to this Philippian jailer because what's his response? Look at verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to where all were in his house. Now, we don't know what he said. I'm sure Paul didn't just say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. What do you think he did? Probably followed up with some teaching, some discipleship, explaining, answering questions. Everybody's there. He's talking to them. And then verse 33 he took them that same hour that the jailer of the night washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, him and all of his family. They brought them into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that believed in God. Now, let me address the issue once again, because in this passage of Scripture, 
How does God plan a church? What do we see twice with Lydia and the Philippian jailer immediately at once after they got saved? What did they do? They got baptized. Through the power of the gospel and once a person gets saved, what do they do in obedience to the Lordship of Christ? They get baptized by immersion. Lydia was baptized. Philippian jailer was baptized. Every time, I, I challenge you, every time somebody gets saved in the book of Acts, they end up getting baptized. So let me ask you a question. Is there such a thing as a believer in Jesus that's not baptized? Yes. Is there, some, is there such a thing as, yeah, the point is, when God saves you, you should get baptized. Now, there's a, there's a period where some people struggle with that. They wait. They have to process more. They've got to figure out more. In the book of Acts, it was always immediate. I'm not saying that has to happen. In the book of Acts, you see it immediate. I think a lot of times there's a process where you've got to think it through. You've got to make sure that it's truly your decision, especially with kids, because kids... Yeah, yes, Marie, go ahead. Yeah, and baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a symbol of what has already happened. Yeah, because it's grace alone. Okay? So once a person gets saved, the normal way it happened in the book of Acts is they would get baptized. Today in our church, we've had people that it's taken a while for them to process. Sometimes they go through the new members class to find out a little bit more about what we believe. Sometimes I've had to meet with them multiple times. Sometimes children, like a little four-year-old comes to me and, you know, I ask little Johnny questions and, you know, he can't really, I love Jesus. Or, you know, sometimes I've had four-year-olds that can clearly articulate the gospel, but then we wait to see. And so there's, there's a lot of different processes. The point is, is that, the way this church was birthed was you've got a fashionista, a slave girl, and a prison worker. And what does it end with there in verse 34? After he was saved and baptized, what does he say? He brought them food in his house, set the food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that had believed in God. So his whole household, it's like Lydia's, their whole household got saved. You see a repeated, a repeated theme in the book of Acts once a person has been saved, joy. In verse 34, this saved man rejoiced at his salvation. Salvation should bring joy. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been around a new believer that has that childlike joy? They just got saved and it's like they're just beaming because God has saved them. Why do we lose that, I guess, sometimes, that joy, that childlike wonder? What was that? Life. Life. Yeah, I think we should always be rejoicing in our salvation. Never lose that childlike wonder. Now, let's talk about the issue of Roman citizenry because it becomes an issue after their release. Let's pick up in verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. 
Therefore, come out now and go in peace. <laughs> Paul's not going to let it stand. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So what happens? The, the, Roman, the, the, the authorities are like, okay, let's just let him go. Go, go, go tell the jailer they can, they can go. Just you know, let, him, let him go. Paul says, uh-uh. You beat us publicly in front of everybody, humiliate us in front of everybody. As a matter of fact, we were Roman citizens and it shouldn't have happened. So don't just do this secretly. You come bring us out and let this be known to everybody what you did. And <laughs> what are they thinking? Uh, now we're really stuck because they are Roman citizens. So, yes, go Yeah, that's, that's probably one, one way to look at it. Uh, the, the main issue that we need to remember here is that they were Roman citizens. And Paul's going to use that later. We won't, we're not going to study the book of Acts, but later on in the book of Acts, he goes all the way to the top to plead his case because he's a Roman citizen. And so um, in God's providence, they get out. But what's the one thing they do? They have to leave, right? We're letting you out of here. You're causing problems. Just go. So here's what happens when Paul enters the city. I've said this a lot. Either revival or riot. Or both. But Paul usually doesn't get to stick around. He got to stick around a little bit in um, Corinth and most of the time in Ephesus. But in these Macedonian towns, like especially the next town he goes to, Thessalonica, three Sabbath days, and he's like having to hightail it out out in the middle of the night to Berea. So... What they do before they leave is very important. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 tells us what they do before they depart. They go back to the church meeting in Lydia's house. And what do they do? They, when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them. Now, they, they, I think they probably strengthened them, probably gave them instructions. What's Paul having to do here? I've planted a church. I've been thrown in jail. I can't shepherd this church anymore. I've got to leave. I've got to make the most of the time here with this nucleus of a church. And so um, think about this for a moment. This is the Philippian church. This is a newly planted church that has come about under some very interesting circumstances, and now Paul's forced to leave. What Acts doesn't tell us is we really don't know how long he was in Philippi before he was arrested and had to leave. But in God's sovereign providence, an infant church was planted through the power of the gospel and Paul had to leave trusting that what God had started, he would complete. Now think about that for a moment. What God started, he would complete. How does the book of Philippians start? We're just going to look real quickly. We're not going to get into the book of Philippians tonight, but I want to show you how the book of Philippians starts because it starts the way Paul ended in in Acts. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, however long I was there, always every always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, Lydia, until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God started with Lydia, with the slave girl, and with the Philippian jailer, even though I'm not going to be there, Paul saying, God will bring it to completion. So we see Paul's favorite church. Most scholars believe Philippians is Paul's favorite church. And so what three people did God use to birth that church? John Stott, who's one of my favorite authors, says this, quote, it would be hard to imagine a more diverse group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and their jailer. Racially, socially, And psychologically, they were worlds apart, yet all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed into the church. Is this the demographics you'd use to start a church? A fashionista, a slave girl, and a prison worker. That's who we're starting our church with. What does Galatians 3.28 say? There is neither Jew nor Greek There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Only the power of the gospel can unify like this. Do you think politics can unite like this? The United Nations? Legislation? Have you noticed that when you meet a Christian for the very first time, maybe you're on a plane or maybe you're somewhere and you don't, you've never met this person, but when you find out they're a believer, there's what? An automatic connection that you have with them that you don't have with another person that you just meet. At a, and and what, what brings that together? You may not have anything in common. They may be totally different racially, age-wise, socioeconomic. They, they may have a totally different lifestyle as far as economics than you, but when you guys come together... What's the one bond that you immediately have? You're both Christians. So, what's the application for us as Emmanuel Baptist Church? Okay, we're not in the process of planning a church right now. God's already planted this church. He did so back in 1954. So, 1954, this church was planted. But I want you to look around the room for just a moment. Is there a beautiful diversity here that can only be explained by the power of the gospel? Would you guys normally hang out together? Maybe. Birds of a feather flock together. Culture does that, don't they? How is culture divided? We have interests. Okay. The haves and have nots. We have interest groups. We have specific clubs that are based around what? Interest. So you have a golfing enthusiasm club. You've got a rotary club. You've got Boy Scouts. You've got all these different organizations. And I'm not saying there's anything bad with those. Those are all good. But the church is something deeper that... Think about this. What does culture want? What do you hear people saying all the time in our culture? We want diversity. We want unity and diversity. The culture screams it. We want, we want celebrate diversity. 
Embrace the diversity. Let's be all unified in diversity. And do you see it happening in culture? No. Why? Sinful people cannot manufacture it. Where's the one place you're going to see unity and diversity truly practiced? In the church. And that's what you see the way this church was planted. So when you think about Emmanuel Baptist Church, you have successful businessmen. You have stay-at-home moms. You have white-collar professionals. You have farmers. You have oil field workers. You have railroad people. You have prison workers. You have retail salespeople. We have black, white, Hispanic, everything in between. We have rich and poor. We have men, women. You look at Emmanuel, we're a ragtag bunch of people that God has brought together. And so here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that all those barriers that the world makes come crashing down as we gather together as God's family in the church. Why does God do that? To be a testimony to a watching world that so desperately wants diversity and harmony but can never seem to manufacture it. To be a testimony to a watching world that needs to see how God can unite so many diverse people from so many different backgrounds and races and social standings and economic demographics to be united together as one happy family. So as we start the book of Philippians, now you know how this church was planted. Now you know the background of this church. Now you know why Paul had to leave so quick. Now you know why Paul is concerned. And he's going to address some issues in this church. And so there are two words in the book of Philippians. And I I want you to read the book of Philippians this week. It'll take you 10 minutes. That is like three pages. There's four chapters. If I could distill the theme of Philippians down in in a few words, it's joy in the gospel. So take a pen. If you're an electronic device person, I don't know how they highlight that, but however you want to do it. Circle how many times in the book of Philippians you've got the word joy, rejoice, or any, any derivative joy or rejoice. Okay? Count those, circle those up, and also count up how many times the word gospel shows up. You will be amazed at the repetition of those two things in the book of Philippians. So Paul is writing from prison back to the church he planted, had to leave. It was planted under really supernatural circumstances. And he's saying, listen, guys, I didn't have a chance to be with you a long time to disciple you. I've heard messages of what's going on. But the one thing I want you to have is I want you to have joy in the partnership of the gospel. I can't be with you. I'm in prison. I'm writing back to you. I love you so much. I wish I could be there. But the one thing I want you is make my joy complete by being united in the gospel. That's really what the book of Philippians is about. And it started with a fashionista, a snake girl, and a prison worker. Not who we would have chosen to start a church and birthed out of prison. 